love of God. Love of God. I'm 14 again. Excellent. Uh huh. Are we taping that? I've recorded. I pressed record as soon as he. I heard the music start. And I didn't realize he'd be so cliche. <laughs> that is not cliche. How dare you? You take that back. <laughs> that's the number one song on every top hundred countdown. Yeah. And that's what everybody wants in like Guitar Hero and Rock Band. And Vic, you should have licensed that for Solium Infernum. <laughs> oh, it's in there. <laughs> it's an Easter egg. <laughs> It's Easter. That, that should totally be a place of power, you know, like Robert Plant, Jimmy Page is on on the stage doing the opening licks of Stairway to Heaven. There we go. You know, that should be instead of that terrible infern or uh, angelic host, you should have yeah. Jimmy Page stepping on demons. Yeah, you know, smacking them around. Yeah. yeah. You are Next listening card. to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com. And as you may have already heard, as I'm leaving all that stuff in, uh, with me today is uh, freelance writer Tom Chick. If I can get anyone a coffee or a phylactery of putrid essence, let me know. Do you have that in eggnog flavor? <laughs> uh, Dr. Bruce Garrick, the master of music. Do you know that ACDC doesn't have any music on iTunes? You know, oh, I know wow. that because I tried to download Highway to Hell. Yeah. Hey, yeah. who's that? That's not Julian. No, Julian is not with us. We have with us, in fact, our first ever repeat guest and our first ever guest uh, from Cryptic Comet, the creator of Armageddon Empires and Solium Infernum, uh, Vic Davis. Vic, so glad you could come back. Well, hey, thank you for having me back. I'd like to. <laughs> We're going to turn into the morning zoo at this rate. <laughs> so Vic, we have you here to talk about uh, Solium Infernum, which I don't think is going to surprise too many people when I say this is already one of my top games of the year. Um, wow. One of the best strategy games of the year, certainly, and one of my top games in general. I've had a, so much fun exploring it um, in single player and multiplayer, and it is really quite an achievement. Well, th- thank you. That's really that uh, means a lot. Yeah, it's super. It's freaking super. You, uh, you know, you, you. Oh, sorry. You, you spent you spent a lot of time, you know, uh, sort of working in a, a bubble chamber, and then you sort of feel like that U-boat captain who's, you know, presses the button and sends the <laughs> torpedoes towards the ship, and you're you're wondering whether whether they're going to hit or not. So uh, it's good to get I, that I think, kind of feedback. Vic, you've actually impacted the magazine and broken the ship. <laughs> <laughs> now we're going to go and uh, get those get those passengers in the water. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Open fire with the deck gun. <laughs> you sh- you should have had some idea though, right? From I mean, from your beta testers because I assume that you had a good response when when uh you did your beta. Actually, yeah, you know, you that's know. a good question. I want to cuz I'm curious though. Well, I want to start I actually, want to before we get that. I want first I want to start with just getting a basic explanation for our listeners what Solium Infernum is because though some of our listeners, you know, follow the blog and follow quarter to 3, uh many do not have much of an idea what Solium Infernum is or it's about besides, you know, some stupid Latin phrase. So could you give a thumbnail description? of what Solium Infernum is, the concept. And then we'll go into some of the mechanics and the promotion and why it's so awesome um, after that. Okay, well, the, I guess it's basically a turn-based strategy game 
set in hell. Its inspiration is from a line in Milton's Paradise Lost, to reign is worth ambition, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And uh, it, you basically take the role of an archfiend trying to um, stab your opponents in the back, you know, uh, bully them with vendettas and demands and insults and win enough prestige so at the when the game clock runs out you're the uh, um, the next ruler of hell and you assume the throne uh, that's it in a nutshell but it's uh, I mean it, it, it yes it's that but it, uh, the whole I, I'm really there's so many different uh, questions that I have about this and I'm not really sure how we're going to start and I'm probably just going to just keep talking so just keep going talk. But, uh, I mean, the, the game itself, I mean, I'm, I'm really, let's not forget about the, the beta tester thing because I really want to know how that kind of came across. Because the game, when I, when I, you were very kind enough to give me a, an advanced copy that uh, I've been playing like crazy. Um, and when I first started playing around with the game, you know, I just sort of had this, this feeling. I was, oh, it's, you know, it's one of these turn-based strategy games and, you know, I know how all this stuff works. And I actually had no idea how anything worked. And part of that reason is that the the game mechanics are so clever and they all are so wrapped up in one another. I, I'm just curious how that how that all came to you because I mean it's it, that that game clearly demonstrates to me that I could never design a game because yeah. so much of that the stuff yeah. that's in the game it, it seems just really creative and 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 and. Uh, and interesting in ways that I never would have even thought of possible. So I'd, I'd love to hear about how you came up with the idea and how you came up with the idea for some of the game mechanics and, and the, the specific limitations on, on, on play that uh, uh, are kind of the, the, the cornerstone of the game. Yeah, and to sort of give that some, some structure, sort of talk us through uh, how the different, like what did the early incarnations look like and how did you evolve the different systems that came together? Uh, I, I yeah, uh, okay, the, the sad truth of the whole thing is that I, I basically stole every idea there. I don't think if you <laughs> look at all the individual components, you'll find anything uh, unique. Um, I took a lot of things that I liked from many different board games, card games. Um, I mean, you'll if you look, the, the resource um, system, for example, is really influenced by that board game, A Ticket to Ride, which sounds sort of crazy. But uh, if you remember the ticket, a ticket to ride, you basically are offered so many cards. Uh, they're public view; uh, can be viewed by everybody, and you decide, you know, which cards you, which color little locomotives you want to take, and you grab them, or you draw a new one off the deck. And so that that was the inspiration for my resource system. Now, uh, real quick, so I want to cut you off there because I want to challenge you on that, Vic. Uh, like I can sort of see at its base level how it's similar to Ticket to Ride. But then also the way you play with denominations and values mm-hmm. for the different resources. Like I, I, I hear you being very, very humble, but I, I think there, there is so much that is unique and that you've sort of put your own stamp on where I play it and I don't think, oh, this system is from game X, Y, or Z. Um, I, I see very little of that because in the case of the, the resource system, I can think of other games that force me, and I mean force me in a good way, to make choices about how to deal with denominations and values of the different pieces of money. Um, so, so 
uh, yeah, I, I just want to throw that back at you. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think it's a literal translation from Ticket to Ride, but it was definitely that was the inspiration. And then, you know, to, to talk about process and iteration, when I first started out, I was thinking that they were going to be individual tokens. Um, because, you know, there's different things you want in the game. You want a legion, or you want a relic, which gives you that global bonus, or you want an artifact, or a praetor, which is a hero. And my idea at first was, well, let's keep it really simple, and what you'll do is you'll draw a card that has a token for one of those categories. And then you would use the tokens to pay for whatever you wanted. So if you wanted to buy a legion, it would be five legion tokens. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe that's too simple. Maybe we best if you had possibilities where you had to choose between, you know, different types of resources on the same card and it didn't match up completely and you wanted to, you had to waste a little. The, the, the part of the resource system I think is going to frustrate a lot of people is, you know, you don't often get the perfect draw and sometimes you got to overbid or, or overspend on some things. That's, I mean, I think, I think that's a, that's one of the many things that makes this game, you know, not your, 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 uh, uh, average strategy game. But the, I, another thing it makes me think of is, is board games. The game itself, I mean, I think you could take this game as is and basically just publish a board game out of it. Um, there's so many things that I can, I can see people doing. I can see, uh, you know, you'd have a little display. Each person would have a little display, and they'd put little orders on their little little order tokens on, uh, you know, each order slot that they have. And then you would have little tiles that you would uncover when you, you know, gained another order slot. Um, the the legions would be little markers. The places of power. If if you had an Ameritrash game, you, you would probably have like little plastic places of power that you would put on the on the. Uh, you know, everything would be. Um, I think you could. I think you'd totally do this as a board game with basically no changes to the rules. Did you sort of conceptualize it as a board game? I did conceptualize it as a board game, but I always had with the caveat that I was going to use the computer strengths to do things that you would want a judge to do. Some, you know, an impartial arbiter to be able to resolve things. Um, that's the problem I think you would have when you when you went to try to port to a board game, there might be issues where you, c- you couldn't get that, that the computer provides. There's a whole bunch of things. Go, oh, go ahead, Troy. I've talked too much. That was actually me. But yeah, Troy, go, ahead, Tom. No, go ahead, Tom. So I, I love Bruce mentioning Ameritrash because I, I think, Vic, you've done this great balancing act between the fiddliness of Ameritrash games, which which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's it's a lot of... It, it's, it's very gratifying in those Ameritrash games to have your little pieces and to see them arrayed. Uh, but then there is also the elegance of the traditional Euro designs, uh, the way that the systems work, the way there's the, just the elegance, how they fit together. Uh, it doesn't have this Ameritrash fiddliness with the game mechanics. Like I think of the way you can look at uh, two legions and do a little quick math and sort of and see who would win. Uh, so you've done this great balancing act between Ameritrash fiddliness and atmosphere and Euro game elegance and pure mechanics. Uh, so yeah. I just, I just wanted to mention that. No, that's a, that's a really I that's I think a good summation of what I was trying to do. You know, I, I'm uh, a board gamer uh, with the understanding that I don't play a lot of multiplayer games through a board game thing because I just don't have opponents. 
Um, I set these things. I've been doing it since childhood. I set these game board games up, and I sort of play myself. Um, and that was the impetus to put this on the computer. Definitely, I, I go to the board game geek all the time, and I I read the new rules. I I you know I I purchase what games I, I I'm interested in and, and play them. And um, you know, there's you can see a lot of influences from like a game like Diplomacy, which um, you know I can't really say that I ever had a full game of Diplomacy when I was <laughs> a teenager. I, I we tried to play it and it broke down into fisticuffs almost immediately. <laughs> I, I think that's actually one of the rules that a Diplomacy game has to end in fisticuffs. <laughs> well, this was my brother, so there was blood drawn, I think. But uh, you know, so. Uh, and and that was a game I actually went and I got the old rules. Uh, you know, I downloaded them on the internet and ran through the rules again. I don't own a game, uh, you know, a game of diplomacy right now, but I looked over the rules and I remembered. Yeah, these are things I thought at the time were really interesting, like the support mechanics, where you know uh, you had to plan out where you wanted the confrontation to occur because you needed not only support from uh, your your own forces but from other players uh, the way the board was laid out so that you don't get the other support from the other players in this game but you definitely do get the idea that uh, you need more than one piece or a combination of pieces to to do something and then I love how that feeds into something like uh, deceit and the deceit rituals the way that deceit can so thoroughly undo a powerful support structure uh, there's this great system of trumps and counter trumps there, uh, and and deceit is something that I sort of came to late in the game. It's one of those later things you appreciate after you've grokked so many of the other mechanics, right. and you see, oh, deceit breaks this. I see. Uh, t- tell us a little bit. I want to I want to throw a few of the systems at you that you seem to think that you've drawn from other board games, and I'm curious what your influences are there. And one of my favorites is the way that your Archfiend's stats basically unlock which game mechanics you have access to, which things you can break and take advantage of. Give some some examples for our listeners, Tom. Well, so early on, when you're building an Archfiend, my first approach is, oh, this is like Tropico. I set my stats, I take a few perks, maybe I take a disadvantageous perk, and I build my Dictator, except in this case, it's a Demon. That's not at all really what you're doing, Vic, because you don't have that many points to spend. Tropico is all about you drop something in every slot. So if this was Tropico, you would set your your wrath and your charisma and your cunning. But what you force players to do is choose, make either or choices. You can't choose everything. So early on, that's I'm like, like okay. Dominions. And that's like any good gameplay design, you know, give the players a bunch of awesome things, but only let them have a couple of them. Right, but Uh, what I was going to say is before, and and, uh, Vic can can talk forever in a second, but that whole thing reminds me of Pretender Creation and Dominions. Thank you. Next. Yeah, that that was a huge, that's a huge influence. Absolutely. Okay, so yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'd like to hear from you is how did you hit on this, this wonderful idea of forcing the player in during the Archfiend creation to decide what aspects of the game mechanics they're going to be able to access. For instance, if you don't take Marshall, uh, if you don't take Wrath to give you the Marshall skill, you can't use combat cards, which are a huge part of, of good combat. You know, it's 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 literally keeping a card face down on a unit so the other player can't do the math. Uh, or, like I mentioned, if your deceit is high enough, you can completely subvert the support structure another player sets up. Uh, so yeah. tell us where that came from. 
it's you know it's hard to f- remember what the exact genesis of the idea was, but I when I went to design the the game and I get out my notebook, one of the things that I wanted was I had this idea of you know paths to power and different play styles and the the top play style that I wanted to be able to provide was a turtling type thing where and it, the deceit probably works in here too where you could pretend to be this archfiend who was just going about your business and you never were up at the top in prestige um, but you were basically undermining your opponents the whole time and then in the late game you would come up with a strategy that was going to propel you to the top and so I wanted to be able to sort of break down different strategic paths that the players could take and force people if they wanted, like, you know, with the minions too, if you want to have access to the real top powers, assuming you've got a game that's not going for infinity, you have to really specialize a bit and you can't be, you know, a master of all trades. You got, you have to be a specialist in one. And so I broke it down with, you know, the martial skill area, which is basically about being the warlord and, and having lots of legions and, and these tactic cards, these combat cards that, that power them up. And then the deceit was another one, which I thought, well, there's a lot of clever mechanics there because part of the game I wanted to be, you know, a lot of game theory where you're trying to think what is your opponent planning to do and what does he think you're going to do and how does that interact so that, you know, the deceit would be very, um, very much a manipulative type strategy and then the, the the one that was the prophecy strategy was really all over the place and it um it was only refined i guess towards the end that it was going to be basically not only knowledge about your opponent's position which is nice to have and can combat other strategies but also about manipulating um the the special objectives idea the, the secret objective ah. idea <laughs> And then, of course, destruction is destruction. I think gets the short end of the stick. It's it's basically about direct damage. Its biggest uh, liability is that you have to have some condition where you can take the boomstick out on your opponents, and which means vendetta. Um, and so that's it, it's limited there. But when you can be, take a boomstick out and get a high destruction, you can really do some damage. I wanted to be able to to let the players really do some damage, and I don't know. if People have you know noticed that you know the, the, even the level one infernal affliction ritual, when you're level five or six, it, it can knock out a legion pr- pretty easily in one strike. Um, and then the, the, probably the most controversial uh, discipline or power is the diabolism, which basically um, controls your resource base. And uh, I, I I've been sort of in, you know surprised and and. Uh, amused with the response to that because there's there are many different uh, it's been received very differently. Some people are very upset that it sort of breaks the symmetry that you really do have to have some power in this in this um, path and that uh, you basically um, are forced to use it, whereas all the others you're not. And um, so I think that's a, that's the overview of how of my approach to the different different paths. The way so, to just oh go ahead, Bruce. Oh, I was sorry. I was just going to ask, just along those lines. You know, you said the um, the uh, players sort of picked that out as as a breaking of the symmetry. How did the your your beta testers when you first got the game? I'm sure that you know most of them didn't really have any idea what what they were getting into. They just sounded like a cool idea. How did they react to it when they first got it? Yeah, well, the, the first response was, "Boy, there are a lot of bugs," <laughs> and. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then, and then I think I did, I, you know, I, I slowly got emails where, you know, uh, this is, I've been staying up all night and I'm really enjoying it. Um, but I've got to report, you know, this didn't work and this broke and I got a script error here. Um, I, I think I got by, based on the people who, who, who I screened and who, on one level, and the people who actually, what I did was I, I put a little thing on my blog to say, hey, if you're interested in testing, uh, send me an email, tell me about why you're a, game, a turn-based strategy gamer, and you know why you'd like to test. And um, I was following the old Jeff Vogel thing from Spiderweb. He had some advice on how to find beta testers, and um, so basically, I, I, I think a lot of the people who who hitched up with me um, are real aficionados of this. So I think more than my normal demographic, the, the uh, they grok the system fairly quickly, um, and you know all you know most of the uh, emails, the the um, the reports were very positive, very they were intrigued, but you know there were weaknesses out from the bat on a lot of a lot of the things. Uh, no major huge design changes, but there were some you know some significant design changes that I implemented. What sort of things did you learn from your beta testers that you weren't able to see yourself? Um. Uh, that's a good question. I think um, well, the, the, I started out with uh, basically prophecy being way too weak, um, and so I tried to to tweak that a bit. Um, you know, most of it was focused on technical issues, uh, as far as you know. This there's a script error here, and this isn't displaying. Um, definitely. Oh, I think uh, the well, the biggest rewrite to the system was the um, the you know the resource. I was way too uh, generous with generating resources. Mm-hmm. So even though my goal was to limit that, if you, you know, uh, demand a tribute, um, you basically got you know a cornucopia of, of resources. So we, we ended up paring that down a bit. Mm-hmm. So I so, do want to ask you about uh, the the charisma attribute, uh, which gives you I think it's diabolism, which basically determines your income. Yeah, uh, and the way you expressed this to me in an email, Vic, is you said you wanted to decouple resource collection from the map, because uh, that's how it works in Armageddon Empires, for instance. Is you, and that's a traditional strategy gaming trope: is that you occupy a place on the map and it gives you resources. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then you, you run into the position sometimes. You know, you want iron, and you know, iron's not in your 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 borders and um you know not that that's a bad mechanic that can you know channel players into conflict over resource and stuff but i thought with this board game approach i wanted to try something where you know you just pulled resources off the map and you did like that ticket to ride approach and it became a choice i can go for guns or i can go for butter i can build up or i can be aggressive you know that basic dynamic and i I just want to offer a real quick anecdote for how well that works uh, I I did over the weekend uh, a, a play-by-email, what you, uh, I think, informally call a barbecue, where everybody is at their computer at the same time, and Bruce and Troy and I have done this as well. Mm-hmm. But I did a six-player game where, over the course of a few hours over this weekend, we played sort of real-time through several turns. And one of the fellas, uh, a player named Soldats, uh, he's from quarter to three, he's from the forum there, he didn't really start near any places of power. So I thought, oh, the poor guy, you know, he's at a huge disadvantage. He's not going to be able to get any prestige going. He's going to fall behind. But what he was able to do, and I didn't really appreciate this until seeing the game evolve, is sit there and draw cards. And basically, like you said, guns or butter, we're out there grabbing the map, 
and he's building up wealth. And he uses this wealth to buy a unit, which I am now intimately familiar with his business in. <laughs> that would be uh, the dragon? <laughs> the beast? The beast, exactly. And, and, and Vic, do you know why you're such a jerk for making the beast? Because one thing... <laughs> The beast is super powerful. It's got, I think it's like, has no range, but it's got a super melee, super infernal, something like that. It, it's got two super high, uh, stats. And the disadvantage is it has a, I think, three soul income upkeep, uh, cost per turn. So it's not cheap to get the beast. And another Those disadvantage us, too, though, that's sort of fun. Which I want to hear about in a second, because I okay. think someone is, is alluded to that, but I don't think I've seen it. But what I didn't notice about the Beast, because I wasn't really paying attention, uh, this guy starts declaring a vendetta against me, and we don't share any borders. And I'm like, oh, he's kind of new to the game. He doesn't realize he's going to declare a vendetta. He's not going to be able to find his way over to me. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of cute that he's doing that. But it's a learning game. He'll figure it out. Uh and little do I realize the beast has flying. So <laughs> this guy who was in last place catapults himself into first place. I mean, he's currently in, in the running in first and second place. And he's been able to maintain the beast. So he flew the beast over to my territory, took all of my stuff, beat me up really good, and then let the beast go. Then on the very next turn, he hires the beast again. He did oh, that on geez. purpose to bring it back to his own little uh, starting territory. Um so I love the fact that I was able to see in action what happens when you decouple resource collection from map control. Right. And I just think it's a beautiful thing, and I was so glad to see how well it worked in this instance. Uh, so what's the beast's little trick? Like, is there some other caveat? There's an event card that lets the beast go yeah. loose. Yeah. yeah. Release the beast. And that's a, yes. nasty, that's a nasty one to be at the end of. Um I mean, it's real. That, that anecdote also demonstrates just how open and versatile the game system is. There are so many mechanics, and as Bruce said, they're also nicely intertwined. That there are so many avenues for progress and to fall apart. I mean, you can have a great plan and have your vendetta all set up and everything ready to go, and then someone plays. Sorry, all vendettas are are canceled, or they shut down the bazaar, and they can do. So much damage can be done um, that you have very little control over. And it's just such a beautiful, tight system, but also so broad. I think if it's going to bother sense. some people. Yes. I think it's going to bother some people because, you know, there is such a such a random element, yeah. to, for especially the events. Yes. Where, you know, you can blow up your own legions and, and just, you know, bad things can happen to you also. And uh, I think that some of, some of it, for some strategy gamers will seem arbitrary uh, a little arbitrary and capricious yeah 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 well, i agree but, i yeah so what, what is so, well, why love is so, that's not a die roll though I, like i love that every event that breaks something is something another player did it's arbitrary right. and capricious but completely player driven which is oh, what I, I really like about the event system. Uh, so, uh, Vic, do you want to uh, talk about why you worked in so much randomness into uh, the game? Because it's it, there really is a lot of randomness. I mean, like Tom said, it's player-driven randomness, but it's still randomness. Yeah, I was I was trying to play with that idea. You know, I like I've written on my blog. I am an amateur uh, system analyst, you know, system designer, and uh, and you see these things when you when you go to design a, a game like this, a board game, and you think of how all these different moving parts interact, I, I like the idea of sort of you know chaos theory where you just get a tipping point and the system 
you know, jumps a really small change in the system in the input jumps the system to a completely different state, uh, and so it has really drastic, you know, state change. And I, I like the fact that it forces the players to adapt and to change their plans. You know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So, and the and the and the fun part about it is, uh, you know, like you mentioned, is it's not just uh, you, you push the button and an event happens. These things have to be played by another player. They have to be somebody made a calculation that the risk versus reward was better for them uh, and worse for all the others, and they played that card that had a random outcome. So that that was the thinking behind that. Did that evolve? Was the event ever something that was just drawn off a deck every turn? You know. Um, I think originally I probably started out with just having, you know, the, the event deck was going to be like, uh, you know, there's a, a board game, a Game of Thrones, where you pull an event card, it, it has a global effect, and maybe there's, you know, uh, some type of uh, clock uh, adjustment there too. And then I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be cool if you had the choice of not only um, how many, which cards to keep, but when to play them? And that's where I sort of uh, came up with that idea that you know when you're the regent, you get presented a choice of 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 how many of event cards. You have to decide well, what am I trying to do here, and which one do I keep? Right. Uh, one one area that uh, so as I play this, and and I I as I so one of the things I love about the game is the more I play it, the more I discover things like flying. For instance, now that the beast has flown all over my territory and kicked my butt nine ways to Sunday, I am now in love with flying, and the way flying can, can break <laughs> the game. Uh, so you have a monsoon. Flying, it, well, exactly right. The monsoon can break that. Uh, and it's tricky, too, when you fly and you don't have a source of the way that Canton control transfers. I flying call that the Arnhem act. rule. Arnhem? Yeah, the, you, you don't drop the uh, you know the British Six oh, ah, nice. Airship Division into Arnhem. Very nice. A... <laughs> and the... Well done. Uh, I'll bet Bruce got that one. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I said. Market Garden. Uh, very good. So, so right before flying, what I was in love with, and I'm still in love with, but I finally wrapped my head around it, was single Praetor combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you completely break the the hegemony of armies. An army, like vendettas can be either the Praetor fighting or armies fighting. And if you've got this awesome set of legions with artifacts and combat cards, one badass dude can trump that. <laughs> and not only that, but it's a whole new gameplay system, the way you set up uh, your combat orders in a single combat. And not only that, but I can now appreciate the importance of manuscripts and the way they can break that whole combat thing and break in a good way in the sense of trumping uh, people who don't have manuscripts. Um, to be, to, for the listeners, you use manuscripts to train your praetors in new skills. And these new skills can completely trash a praetor or praetor. How do you say that, Troy? You would know that. Oh, the former. Praetor. Okay. Uh, they can completely trash a praetor who doesn't have a manuscript. Yeah. So in that play-by-email game that I had going... Uh, there was one single manuscript uh, combat move called Veil of Smoke that that, base, that almost makes a Praetor immune to damage. Uh, and the moment that disappeared from the bazaar, everybody was on edge about single Praetor combat. <laughs> uh, so I, I love how that trumps your army system. And, and can you talk a bit about how that came into being? Here's, that- here's part of why I ask too, Vic. 
is one of my favorite real-time strategy games is, is Battle for Middle-Earth 2. And Battle for Middle-Earth 2 does a great job of capturing in The Lord of the Rings the importance not just of armies, but of heroes. And I love how you've done that in Solium Infernum, is there are armies on one hand, but these exceptional individuals on the other hand. Uh, yeah, and just uh, just a real quick aside, you know, you mentioned Battle for Middle-Earth 2. I, I sort of remember, that sort of jars my memory now, because I remember thinking of these, you know, we talked about the different disciplines of those being sort of like ring powers, um, ah. That you would that you would we work your way up the tree for for one of these and unlock different things that were you know very unique in an area. Very nice. But um, but yeah, the the whole the whole single combat aspect of the game was completely by accident. Uh, I when I went to start playing the game and testing it, uh, I realized that you know you could have a situation where you 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 wanted to do some type of vendetta, and you shared no border with the player that you were doing this with. Because there's no limit on who you demand something from or, or, or insult them. You don't have to have a, the territory adjacent to each other. And so I had this dilemma. I thought, well, you know, what about something like uh, you know, a medieval battle for honor where you sent your champion and your opponent sent the champion and they, they duked it out and the winner got the prestige? Um, so that, that was how that came about. And then the, the combat system, though, was uh, I wanted to do something that – had that feeling that when you clicked the button and you sent your guy into battle and you're waiting for the next turn, you you didn't you had a uh, you knew your 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 praetor was strong, but you didn't know what was going to happen. And then the, I wanted to bring some game theory into it too with these combat slots where you know you have an attack, you have a defense which blocks damage, and then you have a hybrid move which does both. Those are the three basic. If you don't power anybody up. And I and then of course you've got your infernal burst, which is basically oh, yeah. a direct damage one. But I wanted to have an interaction with these elements where you were trying to think, okay, is he going to go block first, and I should, you know, when should I attack? And and that type of game theory was what I was going for there. Um, because you, so. you you don't know what your and the enemy from, from, from hero looks like. You don't have any idea who you're going up against. When you set always true, slot, Troy. You can, you can you can look at the other guys' uh, praetors that are assigned to armies. Right. But one strategy is to keep a praetor in the vault. Right. Like whatever yeah. is yes. in the vault uh, can be hidden. If but that can again be trumped with right. with a good dark augury. Um, so so a lot of times, if you if you're gonna do vendettas with your praetor, you can keep that guy hidden right. and other guys. But the disadvantage is you're then not using them for your legion. Right. Uh, and that was a trade-off too that I was trying to right. to force on people there too, a choice. Well, I, I have a, a couple questions about some design choices that you made. Um, I, Tom and I were discussing this, and, and Troy, I guess when we were all in the uh, first game that we played, Tom was kind of uh, taken aback by the fact that you couldn't tell what uh, what uh, the objective Ooh, of Vendetta yeah. was. So you could call, you know, basically declare a vendetta against somebody, and then you had your own sort of secret uh, objective, and the other person right. had no idea what you were outset, what you had set out to do. Um, and and there's a, there's there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's kind of hidden in the game that uh, I think is 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 uh, I mean it, it makes the game a lot better. But um, did, did you have a, per, a particular end in mind with that kind of thing? Yeah, that's absolutely what I was hoping for was that. You could use that to bluff or mislead or 
you know, outmaneuver your opponent because they don't know, are you going to make a beeline for their place of power? Or are you just going to say, I'm going to grab one canton and take it and then that's it? You know, uh, are you going to try to destroy their legions? It, 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 the uncertainty made for, I thought, um, attention there. Uh, and, and then some second guessing and double guessing on both players' parts. And also, Vic, I, I would argue that it helps the balance. Because normally, an encounter like that, the, the defender has the advantage of getting to set up his armies. But here, the attacker has the advantage of knowing exactly when the hostilities are going to end. And the defender doesn't know that. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think that's uh, that's... Another thing where I at first was like, well, this is terrible. You shouldn't hide this, uh, were resistance rolls. When you do a ritual against someone, there's a resistance roll on 2d6, and it's modified based on things like uh, the target's attributes. And you can't see that, so you don't know how likely you were to succeed. And at first I was like, oh, well, he should show us the die roll. That's terrible. But what I realized is that this keys into the system that when you start a game, you have no idea about the other guy's arch-fiend build. You don't know what perks he took. You don't know what his stats are. You don't know... And, and, and therefore, finding that stuff out through prophecy is part of the gameplay. Uh, so you don't know if you're trying to do a deceit ritual, does the other guy have a high deceit himself and therefore a high resistance? Uh, like, I think that's part of what makes ancient prophecy being underpowered. That's part of what powers prophecy and makes it very valuable. Uh, yeah, it's that, funny you, you mentioned that because I know all three of you have written about show me the stuff under the hood when you've when you've yeah, written yeah. about different games. And I actually was thinking about that and then it occurred, you know, I was and I was gonna come up with some way to present the information so that you could see the the, the die roll numbers and then I thought, well if they start seeing the bonuses, they're gonna know exactly what the power level is in this discipline and that sort of is going to be, you know, really undermine the system I was trying to build there. So I, that that's why it did end up that, exactly that way. And, and yeah. to, to your credit, Vic, I'm so glad that you break down all the roles in a combat. I love looking over the combat stats and seeing how the bonuses stacked up and what the roles were for the battle initiative. I adore that stuff. So thank you for not keeping all that under the hood. So yeah, the, and I, I would have I liked to have gone a little further with some of that, too. There is some – sometimes you can have a difficult time like with the single combat. You don't get to see the damage done um, clearly with like an infernal burst. It's a random roll and then you can see the effect, but it doesn't state somewhere that you know three damage was done. Uh, I, I sort of ran out of, uh, of, of uh, energy and effort to, to place that on the, um, on the combat now, results. Now you say that, but I can pretty clearly look at the – the results of that phase of combat and see how much damage my infernal burst did. Uh, yeah, you can you can you can do the calculations, but I I, I wanted to have it a little clearer. But you know, oh, it, I see. It, you're, you're just forcing us to sort of do a little math on our own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That can drive customers away, though. Don't underestimate that. <laughs> okay, I'm going to I'm going to ask you the one thing that annoys me, and I think Bruce has said this bothers him too. Why can I see so little of the map? Um, you mean as far as when you zoom out that farthest view? Yeah. Uh, well, I get, there's a couple issues there. Number one, uh, this time I wanted to have a smooth scrolling map, so I basically rewrote the um, you know, the the map engine from scratch to do that, and I also wanted to have these maps that wrapped in on themselves, mm -hmm. which like one of the versions of 
Minions does, which I thought was really clever. And I thought it fit Hell perfectly, you know, this yes. idea that Hell was yep. a pocket plane to itself. Right. And the problem you get with going out too far, the way I present it is you start to have – you start to display the same oh. hexes over oh, okay. again. All right. Um, and then – it wouldn't be bad if I just picked one map size. I could probably have managed that, but I have like three different map sizes, and even with that, I started pushing the limits of what my <laughs> development environment could do. <laughs> so that's that's how that that happens. So you know, is that a limitation also for your your decision to not show uh, people taking their turns? For example, you just sort of one of the things that I I sort of didn't expect. I've gotten used to, but uh, in this kind of game, I sort of expect uh, expected to see, you know, the different legions moving it, you know, in sequence and sort of stuff being resolved on the board. But what happens is you just send your turn and then uh, you just get a report that says this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and then you have a new board position. Sometimes it gets a little hard to tell what happened to somebody's, you know, how, where did that legion go, what happened to this thing, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's actually, I think, more a result of the simultaneous turns architecture um, and that a whole idea that you would queue up your orders and then have them resolved by a, you know, a third party of the computer. And so, uh, I, I, it probably is beyond, I think, beyond my coding skills to, my, my biggest weakness is a lack of animation. I, the, the environment doesn't do it and I don't code it very, I, I've never coded it. Um, so you'll never see, you know, moving smoke puffs or, you know, uh, things like nice eye candy. Uh, you know what, Vic? I, I just want to say it that never even occurred to me. It'd you be nice, though. A, you do such a good job, though. Like, I, I have such vivid mental images of Armageddon Empires and Solium Infernum that until you just now said that, you know, I play Civ Four all the time, and it's got little animated sawmills and whatnot. It, it never even occurred to me that you're not doing animation. So, I mean, yeah. obviously, if someone had asked me, but that's a good point, and I just want to say, I didn't, I have not once missed it in your games. Yeah, I agree. Oh, <laughs> that's good because uh, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> Adam, so I, I, I would like to see the Legion sliding across a board, but that's just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one well, you thing know, in Armageddon Empires, you can't pick the piece up, and you know, you place yes. it. So that's a little bit of motion right. there, but but there you could just track the moves. I mean, it's it's a lot to track in Armageddon Empires. I'm sorry, in Sli- at Solium Infernum. So it's you know it's sometimes hard to keep track of which legions where, especially since they all look the same. Yeah, and you know what's funny because now you're you're clicking my memory here. I remember when I first set down to do the architecture for how the turns were going to resolve. I had this slider bar at the bottom uh, of the of the of the interface, and it was going to click each time a phase happened, and oh. then you would see different things happen on the um, the board. And I can't remember what it was that that got rid of the idea, but that was originally there. Hmm. Well, I, so. I w- I'm with Bruce most of the time. Like, I think play by email without a replay feature is usually a huge mistake. Um, but I think the saving grace here, and Bruce, I'd be curious if you agree with me, is that movement is so um, – maybe granular is the wrong word, but that's what I'm thinking. Uh, it's large, discrete chunks of movement. It doesn't happen a lot. This is not a traditional map-based, turn-based strategy game. Yeah. And uh, that when you move, it's, it's rare enough and it's important enough 
that it's okay that it doesn't track it. It's not like something like Advance Wars, for instance, or Civilization Four, where movement is something that happens all the time. Because once I get farther into a game, movement is something relatively rare, and when it does happen, by golly, I notice. Um, yeah, that's probably true. I mean, you definitely, um, it's it's great how you know, your order slots really make it so that you don't just move legions around because you want them, you know, two hexes that way. Exactly. Uh, so, in, in that sense, but I'm not just talking about the movement, really. I just sort of, um, you know, sometimes uh, I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, who, you know, it, it'll say some uh, some uh, Canton changed, uh, you know, ownership, and I mean, you can click on the thing, and it'll take you there, and I understand that, but I think sometimes the map is. I should I should mention um, Ben Sones, who I think did the map uh, art, and who's a quarter to three uh, regular and a, and a uh, former contributor to Computer Games Magazine. Exactly, former editor at Computer Games Magazine. That's right. Uh, did did a fantastic job with the map, and I really appreciate how he was able to um, uh, to keep the sort of keep the art design consistent. Yeah. Without yeah, exactly. Without making you know some kind of hideous. A concession to game, uh, you know, Playing. gameplay. <laughs> just well, I mean, to, to to you know, people want to have all these old. Like I, I think about things like EU or where you know you have all the hundred different overlays, and uh, you know you can display information any possible way you want. Here, uh, it's a little different story, and 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 I'm pretty, I'm and I'm great with that. It just sometimes I get a little bit. Disoriented. There's a, a Tom and, and Troy and I are playing that live blogging game on Quarter Three, which um, my schedule sort of derailed for a few days, but we've 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 kind of gotten a few more turns done. And uh, having been away from the game, I thought I was attacking one guy, and then I sort of saw who I had uh, done a vendetta against, and I realized that I hadn't calculated the borders properly. So uh, while I could attack the guy, <laughs> I should no, have yeah. to go through somebody else to do it. So. Yeah, uh, that's a tough. That's a tough. Like that. That jumping from the diplomacy screen to the map, I, I agree, is a tough transition. I don't know if it's the map per se. I, I, I gave Ben a really Ben Stone's a really tough uh, assignment in that I told him I don't want you know pink and blue and orange and lots of different colors, right. and uh, I want uh, some type of symbol system. So that's what, what we went with, and uh, and of course working with me is not easy because I'm you know trying to get. The, the the graphics to work with my development environment and they're not you know it's not always the most ideal way I can't handle lots of layers uh, the the map <laughs> will just you know slow to a crawl and you know since I was so insistent on doing a, a smooth scrolling map that was another issue but I think it, you have to take a little extra time to to jump from the diplomacy screen to the map but you think of it as a brain workout, I guess. Is my best. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. mean, it's obviously a it's a it's a flaw. It's a you know it's a conceptual thing you got to hurdle over. Well, I don't think it's a flaw. I mean, I think it's a it's thing. It's a particular way of doing it, which you know people. I mean, I, I really I really appreciate how visually pleasing the game is. Oh yeah, the art the artwork yeah. is outstanding. The cards are. Once again, yeah. a highlight. I mean, it's, I, this is the kind of game where, I mean, you've invented a lot of this stuff. I mean, this is, and yet it is a very compelling world. 
just by reading uh, about the cards, I can almost believe these traitors existed and were heroes. I think they're part. well documented in uh, Paradise Lost. I'm not sure the last time you uh, read it. Yeah, some of them are. I, I don't think all those, Get, all those relics are. to be 100% historically accurate, yeah. I think. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, it's just I, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by that. Um, and I'm willing to um, to work a little harder conceptualizing the game in my mind because I think the payoff is worth it. Yeah. This leads me to a question that I have for you, Vic. So, so there's I don't want to put you on the spot, but there are two things that I want you to talk about a little bit uh, that that are problems that I think a lot of folks have with the game. Uh, okay. And the first one, which I think is is the biggest problem, uh, and it's not going to be what you think I'm probably going to say. But <laughs> I, I think the first problem that I'd like to hear you talk about, and this this comes a little bit from what Bruce is saying about how he has to work a little harder to reconcile the diplomacy screen and the map. Uh, you don't have in Solium Infernum an easy entry for folks who aren't like us. I love the manual. Yeah. I have printed out the manual, and I read it in bed at night, and I underline bits, and I've written notes in it, and I love being a rules lawyer. And the manual caters to me, and it's a beautiful. And why don't I do a t- t- tutorial, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, why don't you offer an in for players who aren't, who might, who would love Civilization Four because it eases them into the complexity, uh, or even like Bruce's tutorial for Dominions Three? Uh, how come there's no option like that in Solium Infernum? That's something that's more possible. The in-game one, and you know, the the in-game type of possibility. I, I have to be honest. I, you know, I I started probably about two years ago on this game, and I get to the end, and uh, the idea of trying to rejigger the the engine to click here and display this piece of information there is just painful. I'd rather work on you know improving the AI or or, or you know, messing with the mechanics, things like that. Um, so I guess, you know, I don't know if you call it laziness or stubbornness. Um, <laughs> and I realize that's going to drive, you know, uh, you know, I struggle with this. It's going to drive sales away. The question I always ask, though, is, you know, maybe there's, uh, maybe there's room in the world for a game that, that asks of people, uh, you can't just sit down and start pressing buttons to play. Maybe there's, you know, maybe some some games should should say, "Hey, why don't you commit a little time to learning this, and you'll enjoy it." Uh, well, there there are plenty of games like that, Vic, but I, I think these days uh, they miss out on part of their player base if they don't also offer some way to sort of encourage players to to. For instance, if I was working on this game with you, if I was your producer, I would say, Vic, you are not releasing this game. You're fired. Still, no, no. I would say, I don't use, first of all, I would say you get a bonus. You've done an excellent work with design. Second of all, we're not releasing this game until you provide me with, say, 10 saved game states that are tutorials. And the player loads this up and reads a paragraph of text that introduces them to one of the gameplay mechanics. So it's a 10-step tutorial. And rather than having to hard code some, you know, this piece moves here. They're just saved games that correspond to a paragraph in the manual. So the player reads the paragraph in the manual, he loads up tutorial one, and it teaches, it shows him a single Praetor combat. Uh, so if I was your producer, I would have forced you to do something like that. Because I think there's so much here that, I think that would have gone a long way in terms of the work it would have taken you and the returns you would have gotten for it. 
Well, let me ask you something like this. You know, with Gal Civ 2, when it came out, how many people do you think watched those videos? I mean, do you think that... Uh, well, there's I, a I difference, though, because the Gal Civ 2 is really building on the Civ and the Massive Orion model. It's already a very familiar game mechanic to, you know, strategy gamers and gamers in general. I mean, uh, Solomon Infernum is so unique, and it cribs from so many different board game mechanics that the way they fit together... Uh, people aren't just going to walk in and understand how a ritual relates. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. But I think, too, the thing about those those videos, I don't know how many watched them, but I will bet enough uh, people would, the, the amount of work it would have taken to do a tutorial like I just mentioned uh, yeah. would have would have paid off. Like, I think it would have been worth whatever return it got. However, you know, I never really thought about, that's an interesting approach. I, yeah, I My whole thing was, oh, you know, I've got to, I tried this actually with Armageddon Empires when I sat down about it, and I thought, you know, I'm stuck here with this random map generator. How am I going to try to walk somebody through? Right. You know, yep. uh, unless I jury rig everything to try to come up, and that's a lot more coding. But that, yeah, that's an interesting approach. That's something to something to think about. Okay. Well, I'm just warning you. If I'm ever your producer, what you're in for. <laughs> so that was so one the problem. Other- you have another one, Tom. So yeah, the other thing I want to talk about, and I'm sure you can see this coming down Fifth Avenue. Uh, this is the aggressive I, I, AI. Exactly. Now I adore the game, and I'm more than happy to say, you know what? This is mainly a multiplayer game. Uh, you've sort of talked a little bit about what you wanted to provide with the AI. Um, tell us a bit about how successful that's been for you, and whether or not you feel that's something that that is going to get further work, or what it can and can't provide as a single player game. Yeah, I wow, a loaded question. I I think um, I'm definitely going to work on improving it. I, I think the whole you know framing the argument though needs to be explored a little bit because uh, it's an interesting thing. I I think my biggest mistake right now has been probably the approach I took towards providing some AIs that were very um, introspective that were supposed to be turtlers. Um, and so I think oh, the big complaint I'm getting right now is that the AIs just sit there. They're very passive. And I'm wondering, you know, the expectation is that, that they'll be throwing, you know, insults and demands around and generally harassing the, the human player. Um, and I think that might be a flaw in the way I approached, you know, the, the overall architecture. I, I basically just came up with about 12 archetypes that I thought – Corresponded to different playstyles, you know, along the various powers, the disciplines, right. and um, so they not all they're not all going to go uh, bullying their neighbors. Some of them are going to say, "I, I want to win by powering up this tree and casting this ritual." You know, maybe it's one that says, "I'm going to get some places of power and then reach level um, five in prophecy and go for you know uh, a forbidden uh, lore." Um, uh, win, which basically doubles your income from that. So I think part of the problem is players are, are looking at the board, they're clicking, they're doing their orders, they're clicking next turn, and they're sort of seeing everybody just sit there doing their thing. Um, and so I think one of its perception, not that you know I, I'm not providing by any stretch of the means a you know a world class AI, I would never never claim that. I these are basically you know uh, it's a goal oriented. Architecture where these AIs come up with goals and they uh, try to pursue them as best they can. 
Uh, some of it's a pool system where they try to calculate a pool of things they'd like to do, and they randomly choose one through through a roulette wheel. So you get a little bit of you know, um, st- you know, stochastic uh, process there. Uh, but you know, it, I did one of the big things that came back from the testers was that they were passive. So what I did implement was sort of a um, catch the leader type uh, algorithm where if somebody was starting to pull away. Then the aggressiveness for all the other AIs, no matter whether they were turtlers or you know less aggressive types, um, was notched up and directed more towards the leader. Now, um, you, you will start to see that. You'll see guys with high deceit trying to hit you, your resource base or steal things. Uh, I think one of the big flaws with the AI right now is it doesn't really um, uh, use – the insults and demands to achieve a goal. It, it's more just harassment. Right. Um, so, you know, that's something I'm going to work on. I, um, you know, is the, the whole idea that it's primarily a multiplayer game, I think it's probably going to be enjoyed very well as a multiplayer game, but I, you know, did want to provide something to people where they could play this board game by themselves. Um, uh, I get a, a wide, you know, you get a bell curve of feedback from people as far as difficulty. I think, yeah, honestly, this bell curve has shifted a little more towards the it's too easy. But I do get, you know, emails and I see posts from people that the AI does, you know, uh, provide a challenge every, you know, every once in a while. And then you get to the whole, you know, not to go on here too much, but you get to the whole Soren Johnson issue of, you know, playing to win. What should the AI be doing? Are people going to be satisfied if, you know, um, the AI clobbers you? Uh, not, not that that's a chance here, you know, well, let me all, ask all the you, time. What, uh, did, it seems to me like you faced, given how many different game systems there are and how they interrelate, uh, it seems to me like you faced a very different kind of challenge than you did with Armageddon Empires. Would that? Be oh fair? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I I ended up going back to the to drawing board twice. Um, with I actually finished. I I'd say I had all the the systems done, and it was playable uh, over a year ago. Um, you know, it was playable in Hot Seat even before that. And I spent you know about November to to this you know working on the AI. You know, I had to finish off some art assets, but that and the music, but that was all done pretty. You know, I'd say I had eight to nine months of just pure AI development, um, and I think I got the early phase down pretty well. The land grab phase, yep. um, yeah, it, it's that ex, you know, it's that middle late game, and even yeah, it's the middle late game where the AI has got to decide, you know, uh, how to increase its prestige and how to ha- and how to you know cut the legs out from the the the, the people it feels threatened by and my you know like i said my approach was to come up with a pattern of goals that corresponded to an archetype and the each ai archetype chose from that pool and um so they they would they would show the the attempt was to show a type of personality um do you know which are the more sort of uh, bellicose AI like each of the AIs is an archfiend, right? Like they all. No, have- no, actually they're random. So you can have a guy. No way. Looks like, yeah, you can have a guy <laughs> looks like you know uh, as Azazel, the guy with the you know the bloody uh, spear, and um, you know he can be a, a diabolism turtler, you know. So. Oh, so when we pick those pictures, 
you're, we're basically picking random, but we're just choosing what picture gets. You're just picking up. what they look like. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, you're, you're a <laughs> bastard. Yeah. That's so disappointing. I want to tell you something I did, Vic. I loaded up a game. I, here's what I did, and you've, you've totally stymied me. Damn you. I loaded up a game with a high prophecy build and sort of cheated my way to look at all of their stats and wrote them down so that in my future games, I would know what the different <laughs> archfiends were. Oh, that's oh my god, you're such a jerk. Oh, yeah. You're such a cheater. Well, I mean, but if you knew who, you know, if you knew what they were going to behave like every time, you, you could, you could then start to game that, right? I mean, well, that, that's that, that, that's what I was hoping to do. <laughs> that's part of the fun of Civilization Four, right? Knowing that, yeah, is it yeah. that is going to screw you no matter what? And you know who's uh, going to exactly? You're, you're a devious one, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now that this is out, and so far it looks like it's getting uh, some pretty positive buzz. I noticed the Penny Arcade guys give it a bit of a plug, as well as they link to Tom's Fidget uh, Diaries. So yeah. That's got to feel good. Always appreciated, yes. Uh, any idea what's next? You're just going to take a long break. Uh, you know, I actually have some ideas. I, I, uh, boy, I'll tell you what this. I'm going to, to I'm going to continue to improve the AI and, and look for ideas for you know enhancing Solium Infernum, but one of the things that I want to do is take a look at the uh, rogue you know the roguelike genre, and try my hand at something like that. Oh, that's <laughs> exciting! <laughs> <laughs> I want to get back and finish a trilogy and do another real hardcore, you know, maybe space or, or something like that turn-based strategy game. But um, I think I'm going to take a break from that for at least as an, an, the next project, and and try my hand at at something you know a roguelike. So do you plan to also try with- making like a. Uh- Seven Cities of Gold clone for the iPhone. I hear that there's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention it actually. You know, that's actually that's another idea I got too. But do you do you plan on doing anything with an iPhone? Like, does that, does you know, I think the gold rush is gone there. To be to be honest, you know, I, right now if you if I the 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 developers that I talk to, if you get on the top ten list, that's great. But you could spend six months right now and and lose your shirt. Right. So uh, I do want to ask you. So a few times you've mentioned your development environment, which I think is something called uh, is, is Macromedia. Is that the name? Adobe of it? Director. That's correct. Adobe yeah. Director. Okay. Uh, now I've, I've I've sort of asked you a few times about oh this needs more hotkeys, which is I, I I can just cut and paste that into any email to a developer <laughs> as it is. Right <laughs> Every game needs more hotkeys, and you sort of said, well, that's a limitation of this development environment. Are, oh, are I don't know if it's a – the hotkeys aren't a limitation of development environment. I think the hotkeys are a limitation of my architecture a lot of times. Oh, like the way you've got modal screens set up. Yeah, that well, that's the I, that's bonehead thing on my part. I approached – you know, I, I I set up this thing with – you know, with the ministerium where you get these pop-ups on top of the main menu. Well, my fear was, you know, you get a pop-up and I don't want somebody pressing on a, a legion icon and then, you know – Get, getting rid of the pop-up before the information has been confirmed. So I developed this very hierarchical, you know, draconian modal system uh, so that, you know, you couldn't break the rules there. And that's part of the thing is like, you know, you want to switch between different tabs. Right. Um, I have to de- – I didn't put anything in place to detect, you know, what internal state it was. It just knows, oh, is the modal switch flipped or isn't it? Ah, I see. So I, I, you know, I could probably go back in and rewire the whole thing, but 
at this point, I, I get paranoid, you know, just with the bug fix I'm doing <laughs> right now, you, you, you end up breaking more than you fix. Right, right. Um, but that, uh, is, but the development environment is the reason for the, um, the resource card, uh, oh yeah, that. cards. The, the what? Tom, Tom will, Tom will take it from here. So yeah, <laughs> like, so this is something that really bothered me, but I have, I'm almost, I'm coming around on it, and I don't know That's if I'm just rationalizing it to myself because I like the game. It might be Vic. It might just be that I like the game enough. But you you have the re- the tribute cards sit in a big messy pile, and there's no way to sort them. Oh, and, see, that's uh, not the development environment. That's me. Okay. <laughs> that's, I, well, let know, me, the sor- sorting algorithm, right? Yeah, yeah. So let I me just, tell you where I, I've come to that. I have finally found out, and I posted a screenshot, this little system where I now arrange my cards. I saw that. I, I, that's how I do it. So I yeah. now, Vic, I, I hate to say this, but I, I kind of like how it's fiddly because I now, <laughs> it now matters. When I, when I get retribute, I now, all my new ones are over on the side and I can see exactly what I got. When I badger another archfiend for tribute, I can what see exactly in. what parts they gave me. Yeah, yeah. So a sorting screen would be nice, but I've worked my way around it. And what I now appreciate is there's more of this hands-on sense with these little cards and their denominations and their values. I think you're rash- I think you're rationalizing. So, so wait, let me ask you this. Are all the okay. cans in your pantry alphabetized now? No. I no. am nowhere near as neat in real life as I am in a board game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I've come to terms with the fact that it, it's, it, it's messy, uh, and it took my own sort of system. Uh, like, I had to figure that out on my own. Sorting would be nice, and it would be great to find some way around that. The, the- you know, that, that tray is really a travesty, I agree, and it, it wasn't meant to be that way. You know, it was one of those things where I went to go lay out, you know, I had an 800 by 600 screen. I said, okay, well, now here's the tribute screen, and this is what I'm going to do here, and okay, i got to have these slots so you can pay. Oh, wait, there's this bottom half here I can have for the cards, <laughs> but, you know, it's not very big. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> that's that's how that came about. <laughs> So, so tell us going forward. So you're going to fire me, right? No, 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 no. I'm, I'm serious. I've come to this weird appreciation for this messy system. If you change it, that's fine. But if you don't change it, I've, I've come to terms. Yeah, with I, it. I, I, I say change it and then just tell me what I tell me what cards I got and demanded for tribute. Well, well let me ask you, Vic. So, what are your current priorities for like what things to address and change, and and what things are just on the back burner? Uh, well, number one, I got to fix the bugs. Uh, actually, two things. Number one, I got to fix the the errors in what the game should do and what it doesn't. And uh, there's, I, I think I've got most of those down. I, I'm petrified for those because of the multiplayer game. I I don't want to have somebody intend to do this and it doesn't work, and now they feel they're boned. Um, you know, and I think I've gotten most of those. I'd like if if you're a player and you come across that, please send me the save game. Um, because there were like things like a couple artifacts slipped by where the, the powers did the exact opposite of what they said. The, <laughs> the, the, the panic, the panic special ability on the artifact actually increased your opponent's stats and didn't decrease it, which <laughs> could have been quite shocking after the combat was over. So I'd like to get those those done. I'd like to there's script errors that happen when mostly in single player, uh, almost exclusively in single player because of the uh, the AI scripts. Uh, it just doesn't do what it's supposed to. Um, you know, it reads a uh, integer when it's supposed to read a list or something. And so I'd like to get those fixed. And then I'm gonna, you know, I'll take a look and see about 
some type of you know uh, mini expansion like I did with Armageddon Empires. I you know I uh, I don't know I can't promise what I will come up with that. I've got some ideas, but um you know that'll have to have to see how you know I pay back the art and be able to buy my my coffee. So can you can you tease any of the ideas? Uh you know I hate to make promises. Uh, tease. That's why I say tease. Like what I don't if, know. Maybe, a tease. What if you were the good guy? What if you were the only oh. person was the good guy? That, that's that's all I'll say. And, and, and that's not guaranteed. I, I I I've been thinking about that. But so when you that, by the way, I think of the Alien Crossfire expansion for uh, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> we the bad guy. Like that's, yeah, the yeah, and the bad guys show up. That's, yeah, yeah. We, we just can't go an episode without mentioning Brian Reynolds, can we? Right, yeah, there has to be a Brian Reynolds developed product I somehow. St- I still terraform to this day. I just just play the game to terraform. So. <laughs> well, Vic, we're so glad uh, you could join us uh, for this episode for such a long and fruitful discussion. Uh, we hope that uh, Solid Frame is a huge hit for you. Um, I'll be reviewing Thanks. it for Crispy Gamer, and hopefully uh, that'll be out by the end of the week once I get it written. Um, it'll probably it'll probably be a rave review. Uh, next <laughs> next week uh, we have uh, we're going to be talking about epic fails, games that were disasters either in terms of gameplay or disasters for the company that made them. What and I'm makes, not the guest. <laughs> now we're going to see if we can find. <laughs> I don't know, did, uh, are any of you behind Masters of Orion still alive, or did they all commit Harry Curry? Also, Troy, I think that next week it's going to be tough to work in a mention of a Brian Reynolds game. How are we going to do that? By saying this game should have been more like. <laughs> okay, good point. <laughs> uh, so uh, say goodbye, everyone. Good night, all. Good night. Good night. Thank you again. Good night.